Let's remain standing for a brief prayer. Almighty God, this morning we open our eyes to see your beauty. Open our ears to hear your voice. And open our hearts to receive your grace. Amen. You may be seated. Today's gospel reading reminded me of the priest who would give a little talk to children before they'd go off to church school, and he would always ask the same questions to the kids, and the answers were often Jesus and God, etc., and his spouse challenged him to kind of shake it up a little bit. And so the next Sunday he said, what's brown, all the kids are around him, what's brown and furry and lives in a tree? Silence. And then he said, what's brown and furry and lives in a tree and has a big bushy tail? Silence. They were dumbfounded. What's brown and furry and lives in a tree and has a big bushy tail and collects nuts in the winter? Still silence. And finally, a little boy in the back raised his hand and he said, Father, I know the answer's Jesus, but it sure sounds like a squirrel to me. On a more serious note, unlike that child in the story recorded for us today in Mark's gospel, Peter truly does come to see Jesus for who he really is. Interestingly, many scholars actually believe the origin of the gospel of Mark to be taken from the preaching and the teaching of Peter as Mark was a close associate of Peter's. And Mark records this event right in the middle of his biographical account of Christ's life, right in the center, and perhaps even symbolically so, because the incident speaks to the very heart of our faith. It's the most cru crucial point in Peter's faith journey, for it's his discovery of what this figure Jesus is actually all about, of seeing him as he's never seen him before. There was a lot of talk going on around about whom Jesus was and whom he wasn't. And then one day, Jesus brought it up himself, and the disciples batted it around for a little while and then answered, John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah. There were all kinds of half-baked theories. And then Jesus put it to them straight, Who do you say I am? And Peter stuck his neck out that day, and it took a lot of courage to say that about Jesus, and actually Jesus knew that it did. One could get yourself stoned to death for doing so. And I think it's profoundly noteworthy to see where Jesus chose to ask this question about himself. The whole scene here takes place in the region of Caesarea Philippi which lies about 25 miles northeast of the Sea of Galilee, and it was outside the domain of Herod Antipas, and it was within who ruled Galilee, and it was in the area of Philip the Tetrarch. And it was mainly a non-Jewish area at that time. And at that time, there were few areas with actually more religious associations, though, than Caesarea Philippi. The area was scattered with temples of the ancient Syrian Baal worship, the ancient religions with their gods kind of seemed to hang in the atmosphere of the place. Also, right next to Caesarea Philippi, there was this big hill that had a deep cave inside, and the cave was said to be the birthplace of the great Greek god Pan, the god of nature, 
Caesarea had so identified with that god that their, its original name was Panius. So the place was full of legends of the Greek gods. And beyond that, that same cave was said to be the place where the sources of the River Jordan sprang to life, of where it originated, and thereby connecting it with all the memories of the Jewish people and their faith. So the few Jewish people living in that area tended to be very religiously orthodox. In addition to all of this, there was a huge temple built of white marble to the godhead of Caesar, constructed by Herod the Great. So you could not look at this town, even from a distance, without seeing this temple emphasizing the divinity of Rome. And all of this presents a tremendous contrast in what turns out to be a very dramatic scene. Here an itinerant Galilean rabbi with 12 disciples around him is standing in this non-Jewish area scattered with the temples of Syrian gods, a place that highlighted the Greek gods with much focus placed on Caesar worship with a little Orthodox Judaism thrown in. And there of all places, this rabbi, wandering rabbi stands and asks them whom they believe him to be. It's almost as if Jesus deliberately set himself in the context of all the world's religions in all of their history and their grandeur and their splendor in order to be seen most clearly. And it's against this background that Peter understands this Jesus to be the Christ, meaning the anointed one of God, inferring that he was the revelation and display of God's character and nature among them. And it's in the midst of all these other faiths that Peter sees Jesus as he's never seen him before. And I think this is the great paradox. That the fullest dimension of Jesus is very often revealed most clearly in environments that seem other to whom he is. Some of the greatest writings of the spiritual life are the result of followers of Jesus living in the midst of other faiths and other belief systems. Where these individuals due to their environments, see Jesus as they've never seen him before. And usually seeing him quite differently than the traditional understandings of Jesus that they brought with them from their religious backgrounds. Think of St. Augustine of Hippo in North Africa, there among the Manichees and the Donatist. I think of E. Stanley Jones, that American Methodist minister in India, one of Gandhi's closest friends in his marvelous book, The Christ of the Indian Road in which he shares how the Hindu Gandhi helped him visualize Jesus walking down the Indian road. I think of Father Louis Massignon, the renowned French Catholic priest who had a real influence on Vatican II, who came to see Jesus with indescribable depth living in the Middle East among Muslims. Or Sadhu Sundar Singh, the Sikh follower of Christ in the early 1900s and his mystical encounters with Jesus in, in the Himalayas and crowds would flock to hear him teach about this Christ figure. Or Karl Reichelt, the Norwegian missionary who came to a new understanding about Jesus through his lifelong interaction with Chinese Buddhists there in the Tao Fung Shan Monastery just outside of Hong Kong. Or even El Arabi, the 13th century Moorish Sufi mystic who through his study of Christ wrote, speaking very positively now, the person who catches the disease of Christ cannot be cured. 
I'm reminded of Alexander Solzhenitsyn discovering the person of Christ anew in Stalin's atheistic labor camp through Russian Baptist prisoners and a Jewish doctor. Or Malcolm Muggeridge, that famed BBC personality in the 20th century, in his marvelous book, Jesus Rediscovered, written in the context of agnostic, the agnostic media world. I have spent much of my life living in the midst of another faith, in the Muslim-majority context of the Middle East. I recall sitting with the Syrian novelist Mazhar Maluhi, who calls himself a Sufi Muslim follower of Christ, and we were there drinking coffee in the Medina, in the Souk, in Tunis, Tunisia. We're drinking that thick, black Turkish coffee. Some of you would call it mud. You don't dare stir it. And he's smoking a shisha or a hookah pipe, and he's fingering his prayer beads, and he's speaking to me with such beauty about Jesus. It was contagious, the sweetness in which he referred to Christ. And I realized he had touched on something I had yet to experience, and I wanted what he had. Jesus asked the question, who do people say I am? The disciples responded, some say, perhaps in a sense it's a cover for them, meaning maybe themselves. Some say John the Baptist. For example, Herod Antipas and others thought that John the baptizer, as he was referred to, might have come back from the dead. There was a whole movement thinking that, and it haunted Herod. Today, the religious group, the Mandians in Iraq and Iran and Syria, still follow John the Baptist. Some say Elijah, they said. In the Hebrew Bible, in the ancient book of Malachi, there's a statement that had been interpreted that the prophet Elijah would actually come back as a forerunner to the Messiah. And actually, to this day, some religious Jews wait for the return of Elijah, and some families actually in Passover symbolically leave a chair vacant at the table for Elijah when they're celebrating the feast. And in saying Jesus was Elijah, they were saying Jesus was the greatest of the greatest of prophets. Elijah was known as the prince of prophets, so it was a real compliment. They're actually saying by calling him Elijah that in this Jesus they heard the authentic voice of God. And in referring to Jesus as possibly being one of these individuals, they were actually putting him in the highest category they could. In their mindset, with their religious background, Jesus couldn't have been the Messiah because their understanding of the Messiah in their faith tradition was that he would work in an entirely other way as a literal savior king, a liberator, coming with great military force. So instead, they were giving him as high an honor as possible while staying true to their traditional religious view. And Jesus doesn't criticize them at all. Ironically, their religion, though, got in the way. In a sense, it inoculated them against seeing and experiencing the real Jesus. So Jesus goes one step further and he asks the disciples more directly, but who do you say I am? I'm sure there was a moment's silence. Then out comes Peter's great realization. And Jesus addressed the question here to all the disciples, but at this stage, only Peter had overcome the trappings and the baggage of his own religious tradition enough to have the confidence to say, you are the Christ, or as St. Luke says in his gospel, the Christ of God. For a long time, Peter had been observing Jesus at close range, hearing him teach, seeing him heal, 
assessing his claims. And Peter was known, as you may remember, as the question asker, and he often put his foot in his mouth. And, but little by little, we see his view of Jesus getting clearer and clearer. And his faith journey was a journey of stages. He was a continual seeker. He was a real pilgrim. And we see him always trying to process what he's seeing and experiencing against what he's been taught and his background. And he's always, though, inwardly journeying. It was only now that he was coming to see Jesus in fuller light. And so it's not a statement of his here. Of, of, uh, it wasn't a product of enthusiasm, but rather of a long and constant process of searching and reflection. And his very presence in the Gospels, of course, encourages all of us to honestly examine the issues of faith all the time and to ask the hard questions and to commit oneself really to a journey of discovery. It means going on a quest for the rest of your life. And it's a journey that never stops. For the more Peter searched, the more was revealed to him. I actually find it one of the most beautiful things in the world to encounter someone who is actually searching spiritually and who's continually asking those deep spiritual questions of life. And that's why I have found attractive the writings of Khalil Gibran, that Lebanese-born poet, artist, and mystic in the early 20th century. Some of you remember him as the author of The Prophet. And throughout his life, you see this fascination of his with this Jesus figure, and he's increasingly drawn over time to Jesus' magnetic personality. As a young man, as he, in, there in Lebanon, he observed the corruption, the inequalities, the exclusivity, the hypocrisy of the church. And he finds himself instead drawn, of course, to this re revolutionary aspect of Jesus' all-embracing love and the strength of his humility. It was the antithesis of everything he saw in institutional religion. My art can find no better resting place than in the personality of Jesus, he wrote. His life is the symbol of humanity. He shall always be for me the supreme figure of all ages. And he begins over time, as you read his writings, to see Jesus with profound affection. He writes, in his voice we heard a song unfathomable. In my heart dwells this Jesus of Galilee, the poet who makes poets of us all. And it's fascinating to see how Gibran's view of Jesus evolves in his writings over the years with his vision of Christ crystallized in his last major work published just a few years before he died, titled Jesus the Son of Man. And it's a collection of compelling vignettes about Jesus giving us an exceedingly fresh perspective on him. And in his portrayal of Mary Magdalene in that book and how she sees Jesus, I think we're given one of the most moving and vivid accounts of Jesus' beauty and strength and gentleness. Gibran describes Mary's meeting of Jesus for the first time in this way. It was in the month of June when I saw him for the first time, and he was walking in the wheat field when I passed him, and he was alone. And the rhythm of his step was different from other men's, and men do not pace the earth in that manner. And I gazed at him, and my soul quivered within me, for he was beautiful. No other man walked the way he walked. Was it his dawn, when his dawn eyes looked into my eyes, all the stars of my night faded away.
And on that day, the sunset of his eyes slew the dragon in me. And I think that really captures it. Because no matter the starting point, Gibran has Mary Magdalene in the book actually despising Jesus at the beginning. But when the searching is done with an honest mind and an open heart, one is captivated by this person. And the way to see Jesus most clearly, it's very simple. It's just to follow in his way. It's what the early followers of Jesus were called, followers of the way. What way? The way of Christ, the way he lived, the way he taught, the way he demonstrated. For in so doing, he is discovered and encountered and increasingly revealed to us. Christianity has nothing to do with knowing a creed or living a set of certain religious regulations or believing a certain theology or worshiping in a specific way. But rather, it has everything to do with following a person. If anything's true about Christianity, it's true because of Christ, not because of Christianity, something that grew up around him over the centuries. We are not a people of the book. We are a people of a person. And Peter, Peter made that greatest of discoveries. I close with the words of Peter and Khalil Gibran's masterpiece about Christ. Gibran has Peter as an old fisherman reflect on Jesus. As I looked at his face and the net fell from my hands, for a flame kindled within me, and I recognized him. I was drawn by a power viewless that walked beside his person, and I walked near him, breathless and full of wonder, and I rejoiced in my heart. He spoke to us, and we listened, and our hearts fluttered within us like birds, and then he looked into my eyes and gazed into the depths of my heart. And he said, Peter, you have been heavy laden. Now I shall give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn of me, for in my heart is peace, and your soul shall find abundance and a homecoming. And though that was many years ago, it still seems but of today. In the name of that Christ, amen.